Good morning. First case is Enray HB, and we will hear from the appellant. Please the court. My name is Benjamin Cole. I have the, the privilege and the honor to be here today uh, representing the respondent mother, Ms. Jacqueline Lockyer, who's here in the courtroom with us. Uh, this case presents a very stark choice. The Court of Appeals on direct appeal of a termination of parental rights order. It had one job to do in this case. Answer a very simple, straightforward question. Do the trial court's findings of fact support its conclusions of law. Right? The dissent correctly pointed out that no. If I may pause, Your Honor, I'd like to also reserve half of my time for rebuttal. Excuse me. The dissent correctly said no. The majority failed outright to even apply the rule of law. The majority in this case went completely off the rails, ignored the standard of review that applies in these cases, failed to answer the one question that they had to answer, and instead went scouring around in the record to create its own findings of fact. Right, so there's two things I'd like to do here in my first 15 minutes. I'd like to talk about that decision, go through it actually paragraph by paragraph, the, the majority's analysis to show why the majority completely failed to apply the rule of law, and then second, I'd like to explain that beyond just reversing the majority, it's important to remand this case for new proceedings because the record lacks enough evidence for the trial court to even make the required findings of fact. Right, so again, the majority here, or the Court of Appeals on direct appeal, it had one job to answer the question, do the findings of fact support the conclusions of law? Right? There was no challenge to the evidentiary basis of any findings of fact there were no evidentiary findings of fact in the termination order. So the only question is, do the trial court's findings of fact support its conclusions of law? Right? And the majority think, I'm sorry, in the dissent, you know, thank God that we have uh, Judge Wood here to say to the majority, Wait, hold on a second. You all are not following the rule of law. Right? The law says we have to look at the trial court's findings of fact to determine whether those findings of fact support the conclusions of law. What you're doing in the majority is making your own findings of fact to reach your conclusion. That's wrong. Right? And I think it's notable that Judge Wood has considerable experience as a district court judge. Right? I believe the majority, if I'm not mistaken, has, has none. So it's fair to say Judge Wood is very familiar with these types of cases with, I think, 18 years of experience as a district court judge. Right. And what did the majority do? Right. Judge Wood had her dissent. She explained why the majority was wrong. And the, and the majority said, well, actually, no, we're going to go ahead and terminate this mother's rights. We're going to permanently take this child away from its mother. Uh, and everything you said in the dissent was fine, Judge Wood, but here's what we think. Here's why we think this is a proper outcome. Right. And this is what they gave us. Right. Their analysis, nine paragraphs in their decision, Starting on page, I'm sorry, with paragraph 34, if you'd like to follow along, I'd like to go literally paragraph by paragraph from start to finish in their analysis to show why it is so clear, so perfectly clear, that they failed to do their job. 
right? So we start, right? I'll give them credit, they get points. They identify the right question, right? They pay lip service to the standard of review. They say that they identify what should be their job of figuring out whether the trial court's findings of fact support its conclusions of law. Right? And then we go paragraphs 35, 36, 37. Right, those are just recitations of black letter law. We're talking about uh, you know, what termination looks like under 7B1111. Right? No dispute in those paragraphs. Right, then paragraph 38. Right, mother does not dispute any trial court findings of fact. Again, no dispute there because the trial court didn't make any evidentiary findings of fact about what actually took place in the lives of the case participants. Right? Then they say uh, the trial court's findings are bare-boned and disordered. Certainly no dispute there. Then they go on to say that the trial court clearly identifies the grounds on which it terminated mother's rights. And it's a quote there that just lifts the language out of the termination statute. Again, no dispute there. Right? But then 39 is where, paragraph 39 is where they start to go completely off the rails. Right? The trial court also makes a purported conclusion of law which is better characterized as a finding of fact in paragraph three. And again, that's just a recitation of the termination statute. That is dead wrong. Right? When a trial court in a termination order reaches the conclusion that the language, that the elements of the termination statute have been satisfied, that is a conclusion of law. Right? That's the final answer in, an, in a case like this. Do the evidentiary findings of fact the details about what actually took place, mom did or didn't do this, social worker did or didn't do this, do all of those evidentiary findings of fact add up to the conclusion of law that yes or no, right, the parent failed to make reasonable progress to correct the conditions that led to the removal of the child, right? So many cases say that, right? They were cited in the Court of Appeals brief that I filed, those were ignored. In the new brief I filed with this uh, court, uh, I listed and explained at least seven different examples with this exact ground, right, where this court has said the same exact thing. You need evidentiary findings of fact to explain what happened in the lives of the people involved in the case. She went to class, she didn't go to class, she tested for drugs, she didn't test for drugs, whatever the case may be. From those findings of fact, only then can you answer the question, yes or no, the elements of the statute were met, right? There's seven cases I described pages of my brief, 15 to 18. Right? This is exactly what this court has done repeatedly and without question, right? So that's paragraph 39. They treat that conclusion of law as a finding of fact, right? Why they may do that, we can only speculate. Uh, but if the goal is to rule in favor of the government, you can see why it would be a necessary step, right? Because there are no other evidentiary findings of fact in this order, right? So they're, if they're even going to make it look like they're following the, the standard of review, they have to point to something as a finding of fact, and this is the best that they can come up with. Well, on that question of whether or not the trial court's order has any evidentiary findings of fact, yes, what do we make of finding of fact 15 in the trial court's order? And this is on uh, record page 202, where the trial court says the court relies on and accepts into evidence the timeline, um, leave out the exhibit number, but the, I believe that's referring to the timeline on pages 189 to 190 of the record. Right. 
it says, in making these findings and finds the said report to be both credible and reliable. Yes. Is, isn't that enough of an endorsement of the facts um, recited in the timeline to say those are also findings of fact of this trial court? Absolutely not, Your Honor. I mean, that's enough to say, to tell us that now we know what the trial court considered. We know what evidence it received and considered. But if you look at that timeline, for example, you have f information in there that swings in both directions. Right? Yes, you have some pointing to mom, for example, not showing up to visits. But then you have other key facts that sway in a decision in mom's favor. Right? Right. But the trial court in making its findings doesn't have to only make findings that support its ultimate conclusion of law. They, they make the findings that they believe are correct from the evidence. And so why isn't paragraph 15 tantamount to saying, I incorporate herein by reference all of the factual matters in the timeline as my findings of fact? Well, I think the case law is clear, Your Honor, that incorporation by reference, just saying, in effect, we'll go see this other document that's not in, actually written in the order, that's invalid, right? We see it in these cases all the time where trial courts routinely incorporate by reference uh, court reports, right, which are usually pages and pages and pages long, dense content. Right? We see it all the time in adjudication orders, permanency planning orders. The court hereby incorporates by reference the report filed whatever day, right? And the case law of this court is clear that that, that in and of itself is not a proper <coughs> evidentiary finding of fact about the content of that other document. Right, if there's evidence that says X, and you want to make as a trial court a finding of fact about X, then you have to say, here's finding of fact that says X. You can't just say, go see another document. Well, so, and so I assume that's what you would also say about finding of fact number seven, where the court just says that it takes judicial notice. But it does seem that there's a distinction between finding of fact seven, where the court says we take judicial notice of the underlying file, um, and that's all it says, we take judicial notice, which is comparable to what you're saying, this evidence is before us. And 15, where they say we um, find said report to be both credible and reliable. Right. Right, so then who decides, who gets to go look at that exhibit and decide which facts constitute findings of fact, right? Because then if all we're doing is directing the appellate court's attention to some exhibit and saying, all right, you appellate court, you go decide which part of that exhibit is, constitutes a finding of fact, then we're transforming the appellate courts into fact finders, right? And it's clear, I think there's no dispute, appellate courts do not find facts, period, full stop, no dispute whatsoever. Counsel, uh, on that last point, um, does it really transform us into a fact finder if what we're doing is simply analyzing whether the trial court correctly uh, denominated something as a finding of fact or a conclusion of law? Don't we do that all the time? Absolutely. The law is clear that the a trial court's label of a sentence in an order is irrelevant for appellate purposes. So, so it's not finding a fact by us to, to, to do that? To, do. to analyze whether the trial court correctly labeled something as a finding of fact or a conclusion of law. No, that happens all the time. So I th with respect to the timeline, um, isn't what the trial court did a bit different, perhaps in an important way, from simply saying uh, the timeline's incorporated by reference? Because the trial court uh, specifically um, found that the timeline is credible and reliable, 
why then with that finding by the trial court uh, can't we treat the statements of fact in that timeline as findings of fact by the trial court? Because that's not what finding 15, the finding 15 doesn't say, I, I the trial court, hereby find the entire content of exhibit, what is not even labeled, the timeline, to be a finding of fact. Right? It just says, yes, this exhibit was submitted, and yes, I found it credible. What does that exhibit say? What factual conclusions have to be drawn? What reasonable inferences have to be drawn from that information in that document? Those are tasks of a trial court. Right, to draw inferences from, from details that may be ambiguous, to resolve discrepancies. As I said, it, I mean, the timeline, just as one example, has plenty of conflicting information right, that swing in both ways. Right? If the, it's the trial court's job, and the trial court only has the job for deciding which facts, which conclusion, which factual conclusions to draw from information like that. I mean, it's the same as testimony. It'd be like saying, uh, the court heard testimony from witness X and found it to be satisfactory or, you know, credible and reliable. All right, so which parts of the testimony are the findings of fact? Which part did you believe in? So we, it's fairly common we see in these orders a statement, for example, um, mother testified that X, and then you have the social worker testified yep. Y. And yep. it's fairly much so those are not findings when the court is just repeating things that happened in the proceeding. Right. But if you had, you know, mother testified to X, the social worker testified to Y, these are inconsistent. And then the court was to say, court finds the social worker's testimony credible. Would you agree that that is a finding of fact that as to everything that the social worker testified to? No, absolutely not. I mean, this, look, trial courts find facts, right? To say, you know, someone testified to whatever, that's not a fact. That's just recounting what happened. Someone took the stand and said all of these things, right? Social services submitted this exhibit that said, you know, 800, 180 different paragraphs, right? right? That's just an observation that social service submitted this, this piece of uh, evidence, this exhibit into evidence, right? It's then, it's the trial court's primary function to look at that evidence and to determine what are the findings of fact. And the only way that this court, or the appellate court in, the, in a direct appeal, can determine if the trial court did its job to find those facts based on that evidence is if the trial court writes down those actual findings of fact. Right? Otherwise, we're guessing. Right? We're going on a, uh, an appellate court has to go uh, perusing through the entire record to decide for itself whether there are facts to be found that support the conclusions of law. Right, and, and so moving on then to paragraph 42, right, you see how the court, the, the majority here drifted into the lane of fact-finding, right? It said all this evidence shows exactly what the trial court found and more, right? And this is what really kind of I think drives the nail into the coffin, right? They're telling us these are the facts on which we think this termination of parental rights is proper, and these are facts that the trial court never found, right? For example, uh, grandma's home where the child lived her entire life, the home from which she was taken, uh, was a precarious home, right? Mom had repeatedly failed to follow through on her case plan. DSS repeatedly attempted to make contact, right? All of these details are details that underlie the, the Court of Appeals decision, but where are those details to be found 
in the order itself. They're not there, right? They're not there. Are they, right? in, the, this, are they in the record? Yes, there's a lot of details in the record, Your Honor. So is the reviewing court, whether it's the Court of Appeals or even this court, bound by only what a trial court finds and is limited in its ability to look at the whole record in terms of what evidence is generated? Your Honor, the whole record review exists in other contexts, right? <laughs> that is not the law in these cases, right? The law is very clear. The standard of review is clear. If we're going to follow it, it means the trial court's findings of fact support its conclusions of law. All these details I read, those are not the trial court's findings of fact, right? If we're going to change, rewrite the standard of review in these cases, right, direct appeals are going to look very different because the, all the termination orders are going to look very different, right? It will just, a termination order could just be a very simple form with two sections, right? Section one, list all the evidence that you received and decided was credible. Number two, it's just a copy of the termination statute with a box to check next to the ground that you decide was appropriate. That's all a termination order would have to look like. So how, looking at an order like that, would an would a appellate court on direct appeal be able to decide that the trial court did its job, considered the evidence, and found actual facts about what happened in the case, not about what evidence it did or didn't accept, but what actually happened in the lives of these people? Why did this mother reasonably uh, fail to reasonably make progress? Why didn't she correct the conditions that led to the child's removal, right? And the fact that there are no evidentiary findings of fact here about those important questions, right, is incredibly important because when you look at the record, you can see that the trial court, when you even look at the transcript, neither the trial court nor DSS in its presentation of evidence even considered the true reasons for removal. I don't want to take you too deep into your rebuttal time, so I'll just wrap up with this last question from me, and that is when you talk about paragraph 42 and the majority making an error, are you saying that these uh, aspects that are emphasized by the majority are not in the record and therefore should not have been considered, or they are in the record but should not have been considered by the majority because the trial court did not make them part of its findings of fact? The second one. The second one, yeah. I mean, yeah. Otherwise, we're transforming the standard of review here into whole record review, and that's not what the law says. Right? As far as uh, on remand, I think it's important to note that, as I mentioned just briefly, uh, the trial court, I think even the appellants, uh, appellees here, have kind of missed the mark about what the, uh, the inquiry should have been under 7B1111A2. Right? Everyone seems to be focused on whether the respondent mother, Ms. Locklear, made progress on her case plan dealing with her addiction struggles. Right? It's clear. No one's denying she struggled with addiction. But when she was struggling with addiction, what did she do? She ensured that the child's grandmother was taking care of the child. Right? This child was, when DSS took this child, this child had been living with grandma its whole life. Right? Grandma was the caretaker. When DSS took this child from grandma, that was based on one single allegation, that grandma's home, where mom did not live, grandma's home was an injurious environment. Why? Because grandma was not properly supervising, because the kid was found outside playing with other kids in the neighborhood unsupervised. That's it. Those are the reasons why this kid came into care. 
And so if we're answering the questions we need to answer under 1111A2, we have to consider the, the progress that mom made in correcting those conditions, right? And those are important factual questions that never got addressed at trial. And that's why I believe this case needs to be remanded for new proceedings. Because if all we do is send it back and the trial court just plugs in a couple sentences about, the, for example, the details I just read, this is going to get appealed again. And the, the issues I'm explaining now are just going to get litigated again in a new appeal. And we're just going to delay and delay and delay. And there will never be permanence for this child. So give the trial court the opportunity, please, to fix all of its mistakes at once. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. <clears throat> Hear from the appellee. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, my name is Matt Wunsch. I'm appellate counsel for the Guardian Ad Litem Program. I represent the juvenile HB in this case. My colleague, Ed Yeager, represents the Robinson County Department of Social Services, and we intend to divide our time evenly before the court today. I had, I had a lot of introductory remarks I was going to make, but I think I'm just going to jump into the heart of, of Justice Earl's question about finding of fact 15, which the appellant here contends was not a proper evidentiary finding of fact. We argue that it is for the exact reasons I think Justice Earls was hitting on in her question, which is it shows the trial court performing its fact-finding duty. It's considering the evidence. It's judging the credibility. And, and the word that didn't really come up in the discussion was reliability. They call it that evidence not just credible but reliable, meaning I am relying on this evidence to make a finding of fact. And as Justice Earls pointed out, that particular evidence is the DSS timeline that's on pages 189 and 90 of the record. And, and contrary to a lot of what counsel concluded his argument with, that evidence does show that respondent mother was not making progress right up through to the time of the termination hearing in July of 2021. It, it picks up on March 1st of 21. That's the first paragraph of that timeline, Your Honors. And there are 18 paragraphs documenting failing to show up for visits, not attending permanency planning meetings, or a meeting, I'm sorry, um, not attending mental health, substance abuse treatment, and um, having been clean for eight days in June of 2021, which is again just a month before the termination hearing in this case, um, and not having yet secured employment. So it is all of the elements that are set out in that family services agreement um, signed back in July of 2019. It is substance abuse, it is mental health, it is housing and employment, it's all of those issues, again, um, documented in that timeline that the trial court found to be credible and reliable that support its decision that respondent mother had failed to make reasonable progress by the time of the termination hearing. That is the consideration of the evidence. Frankly, all of the other evidence, um, the, the finding Justice Searles you mentioned and Justice Morgan, I believe, too, about um, having considered the entire court file isn't even necessary, frankly, to support this order. This order is supported based on that timeline. The trial court didn't need any other evidence in front of it. But I think as, as counsel started to read the opinion and get into those facts that he acknowledges are supported by that entire record, 
it's not just these four or five months right before the termination hearing. It is the whole two-year life of this case. All of the evidence points in one direction. I suspect you know, that is one of the, the issues in this case, is there was no real contesting of the evidence. I think one of the things counsel complains about in his brief is that the hearing was only 33 pages long. Well, respondent mother didn't present any evidence. It's not her burden. I understand that. Um, she didn't really cross-examine any of the witnesses or make an argument to the court. There was no two versions of the facts here to adjudicate. There was one, it was the version that the petitioner DSS put on and the trial court found it to be credible and reliable. It made the ultimate finding. I, I think we disagree about the import of the ultimate finding of fact, but it made the ultimate finding that respondent mother had failed to make reasonable progress over those two years. Uh, again, all it has to be is more than 12 months while the child's in care and that supports the, the grounds for termination. Uh, it's, it's, it's really, you know, the Rule 52 standard, which has been incorporated, I think, um, and is consistent, this court and the Court of Appeals have held, is consistent with the 1109 fact-finding duty that the trial court has. It has to resolve the ultimate and material issues in the case. Those are the facts it has to find. The court did that here. Again, that ultimate finding that respondent mother had failed to make reasonable progress, supported by the, the, the timeline and frankly the rest of the record that all showed the same thing. Um, so I, I think that's where we fundamentally disagree here that that finding is sufficient to show that the trial court engaged with the evidence and performed its fact-finding duty. And, and just to, to be clear from your argument, you do agree that if all the order did was um, recite the language of the statute um, then it wouldn't be sufficient to establish a factual basis to find grounds. I, I do agree with that, Your Honor, yes. It, and similarly, I think it's a really important distinction that, that the court's already engaged with between the finding of fact, I'm sorry, let me get the number right. It was finding of fact seven, where the court, the judicatory finding of fact seven, where the court took judicial notice of the file. If it just did that, we have case law that says that's not good enough. But the court did something else here. In finding effect 15, again, not to, not to beat the dead horse, but it finds it, the evidence credible and reliable. That is a fact finder. That is not just adopting the language. It, Anderson is one of the cases that the dissent relies on, where the court just wholesale adopted language from the petition. That's not good enough. That's not engaging with the evidence. That's not showing that the trial court performed its duty as the fact finder and that it, it has made a decision about what evidence is credible, what evidence is not. That's not what happened here. Finding of fact seven, if that was all we had, I think we would have a problem. But we have this other finding of fact that shows that the trial court did engage with the evidence, that it made a decision about what evidence it believed, and that it expressly says, I am relying on this evidence in making my decision. I don't think there would be a meaningful distinction if the trial court had copied and pasted the contents of that timeline into this order. That would, to say that's the difference is the height, I think, of form over function. Here we have the trial court telling us exactly what it did. It's not, I think, as the Court of Appeals majority acknowledges, it, it is not an ideal order. It doesn't spell every single evidentiary finding of fact that the trial court could have made out. but. That's not the standard. The standard, again, is did the trial court resolve 
the ultimate issues that were before it and it did it did it unambiguously and that decision is supported by the entire record in addition to some of the things that came up during the appellant's argument I would point the court to the the testimony of the social worker Miss Carmichael which is pages 10 through 14 of the transcript it's that's the part I point to in particular it's the GAL attorney advocates cross-examination of her which really brings out the step-by-step okay did she complete this part of her case plan no did she complete this part of her case plan no step-by-step evidence that the trial court had in front of it I don't think that it requires whole record review to acknowledge what is in the record before this court is nobody is asking this court to search the record or had asked the Court of Appeals to do that we point you to finding a fact 15 and the timeline but I don't think there's also any requirement that this court has to put on blinders or that the Court of Appeals has to put on blinders and ignore the fact that there is a mountain of evidence that all points in one direction what's your response to what the other side says that the Court of Appeals was going beyond the order in looking at whether or not the findings of fact supported the conclusions of law in the Court of Appeals majorities paragraph 42 in looking at these other matters which may appear in the record but were not addressed your honor again I don't think that that's improper for the Court of Appeals to look at the record I think if the order itself did not have finding a fact 15 and I'm putting a lot of weight on that finding a fact I acknowledge that that would be a problem that would be what counsel is talking about there's no finding we take that finding out of the order and there is no finding in it that demonstrates that the trial court itself looked at the evidence considered what it found to be credible and reliable and then the order goes up on appeal and then we have the same passages of the opinion where it's just the Court of Appeals trial court has made no findings about the evidence and the Court of Appeals is searching through the record and and just pointing out what it thinks supports the order that would be problematic on its own I think what makes it okay in this case is we have in fact this finding where the trial court shows us that it engaged in its obligation as the fact finder and then the Court of Appeals is just not ignoring the rest of the record that also supports that conclusion so or a finding I'm sorry so I think it's a different scenario it is not just the Court of Appeals majority engaging in its own expedition it's not ignoring the record that's in front of it is finding a fact 15 in fact a finding of fact by the trial court that it is finding as a fact the fact that what is contained in DSS exhibit blank as it is stipulated in number 15 is in fact factually sufficient well I think that's the ultimate finding your honor that the ultimate finding I'm sorry I should clarify your honor do you mean that it is sufficient to support the adjudication is that the question the adjudication of grounds I realize that there's some difficulty in finding the vernacular to make this question of mine clear but is it sufficient in finding a fact 15 to say that the findings contained in the exhibit are credible and reliable without the trial court saying that the exhibit is itself factually being found to be a fact 
I, I, yes, Your Honor, if I understand your question, I do believe those are the same things. That for, and, and it goes to the point I was trying to make earlier. I don't think there would be a difference if the court recited what was in that um, exhibit or not. That that sort of, if there was a requirement that the court had to list out, okay, here are all the facts in that exhibit, I, I don't think that would be very meaningful. The fact is the court reviewed that exhibit, found it to be credible and reliable. I do believe that's an evidentiary finding of fact at that point. That it, is, it believes what's in that evidence is to be is true. I think that's what credible means. And that it's reliable, it is the basis of my decision. That I am relying on it in making my decision. So I don't think there would be a meaningful distinction between that finding and one that listed out what was in that exhibit. I wanted to talk briefly about the, the dispositional finding issue, Your Honors. Um, the, the issue about there being no bond between the, the parent and the child. And just to point out, it's well established, even in fact the case that the dissent r relies on, which is RGL from this court, the court actually affirmed the termination order in that case, even though it found that the finding of no bond was not supported. So whether or not that particular finding of fact is, is supported, is not determinative, it's not dispositive in the way that the dissent or the, um, the appellant argue that it is. It's one of the criteria that the court's required to consider, but it made definite findings about um, all of the other criteria. And in fact, the evidence that the dissent and the appellant point to, the GAL court report that does talk about the, there be, still being a bond, itself recommended termination. So in making that same balancing of those criteria, even that GAL report that had information about the bond in it arrived at the same conclusion that it was in the child's best interest to terminate. But isn't it, and this is an abuse of discretion standard, but, but isn't it the, ultimately the, what we have to understand is the trial court's weighing of those factors and if the trial court what, had one factor mistaken, um, why, why do why wouldn't a reviewing court be in a position to be able to say, well, even though he was mistaken about this factor, he still would have weighed them all this and come to the same conclusion? Shouldn't shouldn't we give the trial court the chance to reweigh in those circumstances? Well, I think your honor. So, so a couple of points with that. One is I, I would certainly agree it's an abuse of discretion standard. So um, I don't know that one. If the court determines that that findings are not supported, that it's necessary to remand for reconsideration, because again, there are there are multiple other factors that the trial court's considering. Um, the other one, I one point I would make too is the the case law um, in Ray K and K, which was a, a very similar issue again to this one, where this court wound up holding that the parents there was some bond, but it wasn't a parental bond, and the fact that the, point, the court really pointed to to support that holding was that the um, that the the child was calling the step parent. I can't now. I'm confusing the language from this case with that case. But in this case, it's mama and daddy is calling the foster parents, mama and daddy, and it's the same situation from that case. So it shows that the child has formed a parental bond with someone else, and so to the extent that there was some kind of bond that still existed with the mother here, it's, it's outweighed in terms of there being a parental bond based on that identification of the foster parents as being mama and daddy. 
And so it really is a case that is on all fours with this court's precedent on this issue. I think the, the majority got it exactly right under the existing case law. And I see I'm, I'm out of my 15 minutes. If the court has no further questions for me, I will cede the remainder of our time to my co-counsel. Counsel? Good morning, may it please the court. Chief Justice and Associate Justices, I am Edward Yeager, and I represent the Robeson County Department of Social Services. We respectfully ask that you affirm the decision of the Court of Appeals. And I'll start with where most of the discussion has been thus far this morning regarding the sufficiency of the findings of fact in the adjudicatory phase of the termination hearing. We believe that the Court of Appeals panel was correct when it said that uh, all of the evidence showed what the trial court found and more. But I want to go backwards just a little bit to talk about the context in which the trial court operated. Going back to when the petition was filed in June of 2019, and then it came on for a neglect adjudication in September of 2019, Judge Burton was the trial judge that heard that case. She also presided over the review hearings, the permanency hearings, and then, of course, the termination hearing in July of 2021. She had a deep knowledge of the case when she entered the TPR order. Uh, so I think that you start with that context of what she had seen throughout the life of the case and then what was presented to her. And while the appellant has noted the, the somewhat brevity of the hearing, uh, we would say that it was short but sufficient given that it was an uncontested termination proceeding. And in trying a case like that, with whatever the docket is that day, attorneys make decisions as to how much evidence they should present to a judge who has already heard the evidence numerous times before. So while there could have been other evidentiary findings, we would submit that the findings are sufficient in this case. Also, I would note that the case law is that evidentiary findings are not always determinative of the case or necessary. And I would refer you to some of the case law cited in our brief, including the uh, foreclosure of a deed of trust executed by Warsham case, Kelly v. Kelly and Quick v. Quick. Um, specifically in the Quick case, uh, the court said that the, the purpose is so that a reviewing court can determine whether the conclusions and the judgment are correct. We would submit that you can see that from the, the record here. Um, the court, therefore, in this context, is looking at an uncontested TPR, a finding made by the trial judge that the timeline presented to her, much of the evidence in which had been previously presented at other hearings and was contained in the underlying juvenile court file, that that was accurate and reliable. And we believe that gives you sufficient information to uh, assess the ultimate finding of fact which supports the conclusions of law, the judgment terminating parental rights. Uh, I also wanted to address uh, the appellant's contention that there were seven cases. Uh, they are also mentioned on pages 15 to 18 of the appellant's brief in which appellate courts looked at the evidentiary findings of fact. Um, that is accurate, and in each of those decisions, the court did look at the evidence that had been found by the trial judge. What I would say, though, is that on a careful reading of those cases, 
you see that either in each of those cases a respondent testified or that they presented other evidence to the trial court um, to contest the, the hearing. That did not apply in this case. Uh, also, in each of those cases, the court never held that those findings were necessary or that it would not have reached the same decision without those findings. Lastly, I, you know, we would disagree with the appellate's contention that asking appellate judges to look at the, the record, the record on appeal, constitutes some type of appellate uh, fact-finding. First, I would note that the record is clear in this case as to the lack of progress, as to the life of the case and how it got to the termination stage. But we also present the record so that uh, the Court of Appeals can have all of that information in front of it. Subject to any questions about the adjudicatory phase, I also did want to touch on the dispositional hearing because uh, that became an issue uh, with this finding that there was no bond between the mother and the child. C counsel, I, I do have a question on the, the fact finding. Um, counsel for the appellant uh, asserted that if we were to affirm the Court of Appeals that we would transform, I guess, order writing for uh, in termination cases. And so all the trial court would have to do is have one finding on a stack of documents. I find these uh, credible and reliable, and then simply check a box uh, indicating the, the basis for termination. Do you, do you agree with that? I don't agree. I think that, that generally speaking, trial judges work very hard to enunciate what their findings are and their reasoning for why they reach a particular decision. Some of that's in the oral rendition that occurs from the bench, and sometimes it makes its way into the trial court order. Sometimes, unfortunately, it does not. Uh, I, I would also say that um, we have seen those orders where a court says this witness testified this way, this witness testified that way, and those are the, the essentially all of the findings that are in the order, and it's very difficult, if not impossible, for an appellate bench then to make a decision, well, what was the court relying on? Uh, in this case, I, I don't think it would have the effect of, of transforming orders because the peculiarities of this case, but also because I think that timeline contained information known to Judge Burton, and it was information that she relied upon to make her decision. Uh, with respect to the dispositional phase, it is true that there was a finding of no bond between the mother and the child, and that was inconsistent with the guardian ad litem's report. Of course, the dispositional phase is reviewed subject to abuse of discretion by the trial court. But even in Judge Burton's rendition, she noted particular reasons why she felt the bond might, um, might not exist or that it was a strained relationship uh, and where she talked about the mother having missed visits um, and made less progress closer to the termination proceeding. Uh, or as she called it, failed to progress on the case plan. So we would submit it's not an abuse of discretion, that in fact, Judge Burton's order that it was in the child's best interest actually is consistent with her oral rendition, uh, as well as a, represents a balancing of all the factors that go into that question. 
the last matter, it has not come up this morning, but I feel obligated to, to mention it, has to do with the question that was mentioned in the briefs regarding an amendment to uh, the petition. Uh, and there is some confusion about that. Uh, in the transcript that uh, Department of Social Services moved to amend the, the petition to terminate parental rights to correct a date in that petition. And then the attorney for DSS also made a motion to, uh, a, a Rule 15 motion for the petition to conform with the evidence. The transcript is somewhat unclear. Judge Burton did not address the motion to conform. She addressed the amendment uh, of the September date. In her findings with respect to the adjudicatory phase, she did not mention the prior TPR. She did mention it at the conclusion of all of the evidence following the dispositional phase, and then it was in the order. Um, one of the cases cited is NRA BLH, in which um, this Court of Appeals had heard it, this court, uh, affirmed it and said that you can only amend if there's no notice. The difference in the BLH case is that the trial court only found one ground to terminate, and it was the ground that was subject to the motion to conform. That's entirely different from this case. Other grounds were found. In fact, the Court of Appeals did not review that as a ground, only needing to affirm with respect to one of the grounds. In, in summary, the, the petitioner appellee respectfully submits that the order was sufficient for termination and asks you affirm the decision of the Court of Appeals. Subject to any other questions, we would ask for that, uh, for you to affirm the Court of Appeals majority decision. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Well, once again, God bless Judge Wood, right? Because she was the only person on this panel that said, hold on a second, right? Bare-boned, disordered, minimally sufficient, however you want to put it, that's not good enough in these cases, right? This is the civil death penalty we're talking about. This is the most severe remedy that a civil court can inflict on any individual person in this country, taking away their child forever. Right? And we're going to settle for bare bone. We're going to settle for ignoring the standard of review. Right? I mean, you heard them talk about facts. Right? You heard them try to explain their impression of what the evidence showed. But you never heard them actually articulate how the majority followed the standard of review. Right? It was in their oral arguments. It's in their brief. Right? Page 11. Right? This is how they sum up their argument about the, the standard, how, how this type of case should be analyzed. Accordingly. If the trial court's findings of fact permit the appellate court to determine that the trial court considered the evidence presented at the hearing, the findings are sufficient. No, that's not the standard of review. Do the trial court's findings of fact support the conclusion of law? That's the standard of review, right? Mr. Wunsch earlier, he said, well, uh, the order shows that the trial court resolved the ultimate issues, not the standard of review. If I heard Mr. Yeager correctly, right, uh, I think he was answering your question, Justice Allen, when he said uh, evidentiary findings of fact about what actually took place, those are only needed if the parent actively contests the termination at the hearing. That's not the standard of review. And God, if, if that becomes the law, you're going to see a lot more ineffective assistance claims. Right? Mr. Yeager said, 
Uh, well, generally, trial court's factual reasoning makes it into their orders. Well, generally, yeah, that's true. Not here, right? There is no factual reasoning to be found in the trial court's order. That is what's missing, right? Um, and I'm glad Mr. Wunsch brought up Rule 52 because that is something that they go into at length in their brief. Um, and this is sort of the explanation, the buildup to their statement, sort of their misframing of the standard of review uh, as being, well, it's good enough if the findings of fact show that the trial court considered the evidence. How did they get to that, right? What's their support for that, right? That's the discussion you see uh, in paragraphs on page 9 and 10 of their brief. Uh, Quick case is in there. I think Mr. Yeager mentioned that one. There's a bunch of other cases in there. If you read all of those cases, right, just like the seven examples that I cite in my brief, right, you'll see that in each of those cases, what happened was what should have happened here. Right? The trial court made evidentiary findings of fact about what actually took place in the case. What happened in time and space? What, when, where, who? all of those important details. From those evidentiary findings, the appellate court could determine whether or not the required conclusions of law were supported, right? The only way they're able to stitch together this rationale for their made up standard of review is to just selectively pluck little truncated quotes from all of these cases, right? But I encourage you, please go read all these cases that they say and you will see that in each of those cases, it was a routine analysis, the same type of routine analysis that should have happened here. And going back to the, you know, finding of fact 15, the trial court's, you know, reference to uh, the, the, the unidentified exhibit timeline, um, right? If we're treating that as a finding of fact, right, what does it actually say, right? It says that the trial court relies on and accepts this timeline in making these findings, right? All the trial court is telling us there is that, yeah, I accepted the timeline, I thought it was credible, and then I used that to make my findings, right? So the trial court itself is telling us finding of fact 15 isn't an evidentiary finding of fact. Finding of fact 15 is just, an just a statement that I use the timeline to then turn around and make other findings of fact. Well, that's what the trial court, I mean, it, maybe it thought it, that's what it was doing. Uh, maybe it planned to go back. I mean, we can see sort of just frankly put, like how poorly written this is, right? It skips from eight to nine, right? DSS exhibit blank, that's the timeline. They don't even put in the exhibit number, right? This is just a poorly executed job, right? And again, these cases are just too important, right? We're talking about destroying a family, and this is good enough? I think I'm hearing counsel in your presentation as well that if the trial court is saying that it's relying upon the timeline in making these findings, and if you're contending that these aren't really findings, then paragraph 15, or finding of fact 15, can't be a finding because it's relying upon purported findings that are not findings, if I'm following your original presentation with your rebuttal. I mean, the, the bottom line is there are no evidentiary findings of fact in this order about what actually took place in this case, period. Those types of evidentiary findings are an absolute requirement in an order of this type because without them, 
it's impossible to determine whether the conclusions of law are properly supported as they must be under the standard of review by findings of fact in the order. Right. And again, sort of similarly to that point, if, if we're accepting their argument, if we're ratifying what the majority did, if we're saying all of the timeline is now its own finding of fact, well, then we have serious unresolved factual issues, right? Because again, if we're talking under 1111A2, we're talking about the reasons for removal. Why did this come into, why did this government take this kid out of her home, right? That's for one reason and one reason only. Her home was grandma's house. And grandma's house was an injurious environment because grandma was not properly supervising the kid because the kid was playing outside unsupervised, right? What does the timeline tell us about grandma's house? The kid was still living at grandma's house, right? The reunification plan was reunification with grandma. Right? DSS later took the kid away out of grandma's house again. Why? Because the kid had a black eye. And what does the timeline tell us about that? The kid said she banged her head against a nut, well, Bradley, somebody named Bradley, we don't know who Bradley is, presumably another kid in the neighborhood, banged, bumped her head against Bradley, got a black eye, had scratches on her arm because she was playing with a dog. Those are the reasons why DSS took the kid away from grandma a second time, right? We also see in the file of which the court took judicial notice, we see a letter dated two months before they filed the termination position that said grandma completed all she was asked to do. She went to her parenting class and the licensed social worker who oversaw those classes said, and I quote, let me get this right because it's incredible. While working with grandma, we have not had any concerns for her parenting skills. There's been no signs to make us concerned with her ability to parent. That's two months before they filed the termination petition. So how are the conditions of removal not adequately addressed when these are the facts that the record points to, right? These are the factual issues that the trial court failed to grapple with. This is why the trial court failed to do its job to actually review the evidence and to decide for itself what actually happened in this case and how it could possibly be that the conclusions of law are, are properly supported. Lastly, as to the disposition issue, the KNK case uh, that they based their argument on, it's completely factually distinguishable. That's addressed in my reply brief. I direct the court's attention there. Uh, when the trial court finds there is no bond, period, full stop, no bond, and all the evidence says there is a bond, right? Maybe mom missed some visits, but every time the kid sees her, the kid is excited, right? They still have a relationship. Who cares what she calls the foster mom, right? That's not the question. If she calls the foster mom, mom, the question is, is there any evidence showing that there is no bond? There is none, right? So then the question is, all right, if it's improper for an appellate court to reweigh dispositional evidence in the dispositional factors, it is impossible to conclude that the dispositional decision is properly supported absent that finding because the only way you get there is if you, the appellate court or the court of appeals, reweighs the evidence, right? We have factors one, two, three, four, five. The trial court decided that that all added up to enough to terminate. So if we take out factor four, the only person that can decide whether those remaining four factors or if it chooses to you know, make a new a version of factor one. The only person that can decide. Thank you, counsel. Your time's expired. Court.